Base Camp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources in how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. So many of our wisdom traditions and myths speak of the recovery of the soul. In the central myth of the Gnostics, the goddess Sophia has fallen. The feminine soul has descended out of the pleroma or heavenly abode all the way to the material dimension that we find ourselves in. Sophia, confused, lost, bewildered, and homesick, the feminine soul begins its slow, steady journey back to its heavenly abode. Myths and fairy tales often contain the clues and maps of the soul's journey, its descent and eventual ascension. Myths awaken and nourish the divine imagination. They nourish the soul. To use my guest's words, when we are not in touch with the soul, it is as if a vital part of us is asleep. It cannot communicate with us, nor we with it. Civilizations such as ours may die because we have forgotten how to nourish the soul and imagination. We have forgotten how to honor and love nature and the divine feminine. All of our most vibrant myths seem to be pointing in this direction, to the marriage of the divine masculine spirit with the divine feminine soul. We are, as a tribe, being asked to reclaim what has been dormant but not forgotten. We will not restore the wasteland we find ourselves in without this awakening. Technology will not rescue us, not with its dry digital landscape, its algorithms. Technology represents a kingdom without the goddess, without nature and the divine feminine. In mythic terms, the most beautiful maiden of the forest is in a deep sleep and awaits for the right prince, for the right moment in the story. It seems we have arrived at this part of the story. We're there. The destiny of the entire kingdom is dependent on this outcome. Can the prince, the symbol for solar consciousness, turn inward and find the lunar soul, his inner divine feminine? Each one of us holds a part of this soul. The myth of the Holy Grail includes all of us. Each one of us is the sleeping beauty and the prince that restores her and the kingdom. It is important to remember that the soul does not communicate primarily through words. It does through myth and poetry, but the soul seems to prefer feelings, intuitions, emotions, and dreams. It is in this inner direction that holds the key to the grail and has the potential to awaken the sleeping princess. My guest today has written an incredible book, one that ought to sit up high in anyone's library. Dr. Anne Baring is a Jungian analyst and the author of seven books, including her most recent book, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul, which was awarded the Scientific and Medical Network Book Prize for 2013. The ground of all her work is a deep interest in the spiritual, mythological, shamanic, and artistic traditions of different cultures. Her website, www.annebaring.com, is devoted to the affirmation of a new vision of reality and the issues facing us at this crucial time of choice. Here is my interview with Anne Baring. Okay, I am here with Anne Baring, author, thought leader, Anne Baring, and welcome to Base Camp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Lovely to be here, Tony. Your book, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul, wow. What a book. It, it, I read it. It took you 20 years to write it. I know you've written a bunch of books, but this has got to feel, this has got to be your magnum opus, doesn't it? Yes, it is my magnum opus. And it, it took me 20 years. I'm, I'm recommending it to all my friends. It's one of those books that every once in a while you come across a book 
that feels like it could replace about two thirds of the books on your bookshelf. And this is one of those books for me where I'm like, it's kind of all in here. (laughs) So great job. You have to be so proud of putting that together. Um, And how did you know that you were finally done with it? You know, you've been working on it so long. When, when did you finally go, okay, that's it. Just with the last chapter, it just came to the last chapter. It seemed to write itself. I called it, I can't remember, it's title now, but anyway, that seemed to be the end, and I was very pleased with it. I felt I've done a good job. Absolutely. It's my life work, really my my great project of my life, and I I was thrilled to be at the end, finally. Yeah, I bet, I bet, yeah. You know, there were so many things that I loved in it, but one of the little things that I was delighted by is you mentioned uh, Richard Maurice Buck's cosmic consciousness in in the book. And I don't, people don't talk very much about that book. And I have a really quick story about that book because when I was really young, I had, I was dating this girl and she had an, a really kind of uh, eccentric father. He did meditation. Like nobody did. I had, didn't know anybody that did meditation. So he was this interesting character. Uh, and we went out to dinner one night and I said, Hey, if you were to recommend one book, what would it be? And without hesitating, he said, Richard Maurice Buck's Cosmic Consciousness. And so the next time I was at the bookstore, I was looking for it and I I was lucky enough to find it. And it changed really everything. It changed the trajectory of my life. It it I recognized that I was a seeker for of these higher uh, states of consciousness. It led to everything that followed. Like I, it led to other books that were really important to me, Joseph Campbell and, and Ram Dass, and then all of the forays I did into mysticism and Gnosticism and such. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you're obviously a seeker uh, and a spiritual person, a mystic, a poet. Was there one or two books early in your life that had a similar effect where you were like, that was the book that sparked everything that followed? I don't think there really was because I didn't, until I was about 21, I didn't really become conscious that there was such a thing as a quest in my life. And I was at a university at that time. I was reading a great many books. I think one of the books made a great impression was William James, the, the Varieties of Religious Experience, which I read early on. I was also reading Plato, if you please, at the age of 15. Mm. And also um, wonderful books on the Gnostic tradition by G.R.S. Mead. And finally, The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley. That had a big influence on me because it kind of gave me a, a path to follow. And I knew somebody had already tread, trod that path. There were other books, but I, those are the ones I remember most. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned the image of an invisible dimension of reality that lies behind many images of the quest, in particular, the Holy Grail, where the image is a boundless source of nourishment and renewal. Why does the Holy Grail still seem to hold so much relevancy and power? I mean, I go if I go check out a book at the library on the Grail, there's often a pretty big waiting list. So people, it's it's obvious that people are still enchanted with the Holy Grail. Why does it hold so much power, do you think? Well, I think because it all started in the 12th century. That was the century when it kind of took root. And that was the century, at the beginning of the century, nobody had heard of the Holy Grail. And at the end of the century, there was nobody who hadn't heard of it in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it was a tremendous um, imprint, really, on the collective psyche at that time. 
and it's never been forgotten because it kind of went out of sight for a while. It was connected with the Arthurian legends, and every child read the Arthurian legends in my childhood. Certainly, that was actually that was one of the books that I loved, and so um, it kind of stayed in the background of people's consciousness. And I think that's why people go into the library and and, and pick it out and want to know more about it. And also, nobody knows really what it is. And I yeah. think I worked out what it is. It's a holder of a, con a container, and it contains the whole life of the, of the um, cosmos pouring into it, pouring down into our dimension, if you like. So that, to me, is what the Holy Grail is. And as I say, it became widely known in the 12th century because the troubadours took the message of the uh, search for the, the quest for the Grail and the knights that were going on the quest, they took it all over Europe. And they even took it as far as uh, the Holy Land, I think. So it, it traveled all over the place. In that 12th century, it was an image that represented the Cathar Church of the Holy Spirit that was founded in southwestern France in 1157. Now, this church, the Holy Spirit, Church of the Holy Spirit, claimed to have preserved the true teaching of Christ in a direct line of descent. And it was a rivalry to the Catholic Church, a rival to the Catholic Church, who really wanted to destroy it and wipe it out. So the Holy Grail could also be understood to represent the sacred teaching that was brought to the south of France by Mary Magdalene in 44 AD, or, or the Christian era. And Mary Magdalene lived and taught there for 20 years. And she was recognized as the Holy Bride, the Bride of Christ, the Bride of Jesus. So the Holy Grail carries a tremendous history. Not only is it uh, the, the cosmic grail, as it were, but it's also this teaching coming directly from Christ. And it was also uh, Mary Magdalene herself was thought of as the Holy Grail because she was the carrier of Jesus's children. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there that hangs on that uh, two words. Holy Grail carries a lot of baggage. Well, and it, 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 it contains one of the key things that contains the divine feminine, right? It's Absolutely. sort of hidden. It's sort of hidden in the myth. You don't, it's not obvious on a first read necessarily, unless you're looking in that direction. You, you think it's about knights and chivalry and courage and all these things. It doesn't, it might not arrive until you have evolved to a point where you understand, wait a minute, this is really about the divine feminine. And, and there's some writers that don't come across that at all. They don't interpret it that way, but it becomes very obvious once you have a particular lens for it. You're absolutely right, because it is the missing feminine value, the, the divine feminine who was or is was, is, was yep. the Holy Spirit. Yep. And that's why this Church of the Holy Spirit represented the divine feminine, the missing aspect of God. So yeah. it's terribly important. It's the most important symbol that we have. And um, for me, it, it has tremendous meaning, and obviously for you as well, which is lovely. Absolutely. Well, and we'll talk about the the imbalance later, and 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 how the church or the Roman Church uh, changed the the stories to eliminate the goddess or the feminine uh, in any sort of religion. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, I was really delighted because I'm a big fan of fairy tales and the power that they have to instruct, uh, often children, but they're, but they're beautiful layered 
stories uh, for humanity, really. They, they, they carry in simple stories often many, many layers for people. And you, you mentioned that the Sleeping Beauty, the myth of the fairy tale of the Sleeping Beauty is perfect sort of medicine for our times. And I wanted to ask you, like, what, what is your, why is it so relevant right now in this, in this time? And why is the Sleeping, the Sleeping Beauty particularly relevant? Well, the sleeping beauty really is an image of the lost feminine principle. We've been put to sleep for a thousand years or two thousand years. And it's a wonderful story. It's a story, as you say, which children absolutely love and my favorite story. And I just, I love the whole thing about, and I connect it now with the pandemic, actually, because it's like the, the whole court of humanity has been put to sleep or under a spell with this yeah. uh, virus that is going around everywhere. Absolutely. And who has put this spell on us but nature herself because we've um, inflicted such harm on nature. And this virus has come because we are so unbalanced and have done such harm. So there's a great wisdom, not when, the people, when, not when it was written, because it was written at a time, I think, again, very early on, because there's many, many versions of it, um, it, it, it's a hidden teaching that probably went underground in the 13th century and has come down to us in this form of this fantastic fairy tale. And the hedge of thorns are all the ideas and the ways of behaving and the things that we've been taught that we merely need to break through and discover what is the meaning of life mm. for ourselves, not something we've been told. So that heroic prince is really the best aspect of humanity, breaking through all the past accumulated stuff that we've been taught or we've been told and all our ways of behavior. And he gets through, whereas the other princes who tried, they died in the attempt. So there've been many heroes in the past who've tried to bring humanity a greater wisdom, mm -hmm. but they perished either because they were killed um, by the Inquisition or by uh, this or by that or by in war. So this prince is very important as an image of the male aspect or the aspect of the psyche that can manifest something that is very important, bring into manifestation, because that's the great role of the masculine, is to carry this wisdom into practice. And he, his role is to go and rescue the feminine principle, which has been put into this spell for a hundred years, and bring her back to life. And when she comes back to life, the whole court wakes up. Yeah. And then there can be the, the sacred marriage, which is one of the most marvelous uh, ceremonies that used to exist in older civilizations, but has been lost in ours because there's no marriage between the masculine and feminine principles. Well, so it's a terribly important fairy tale. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you you write about it so beautifully. I love how you talk about the 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 soul and spirit or the 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 lunar principle of the, the soul and the solar principle of the divine masculine. But one of the things I want to ask you, so there's, there's a hedge of thorns that keeps all other princes away. But when this particular prince arrives, they turn to roses and he is able to get through. What, what makes that prince unique? It's not one person, obviously it's consciousness. Is it that, the, the divine masculine or the divine consciousness is seeking the soul, the element of seeking the feminine, seeking the soul that, that parts the way? Why is that prince the right prince? Well, 
it's interesting. It suddenly occurred to me that the hedge turns to roses. Now, roses has always been the symbol of the wisdom tradition. Yeah. So I think, it just occurred to me now, I think this prince carries the wisdom uh, tradition. And that is why the hedge of thorns turns to roses for him. Okay. Because he's the one that is carrying the, 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 the true memory, really, of what has been lost and what needs to be found again. Uh, so he knows, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, and yeah. that's why he can get through, whereas the other princes probably wanted to just see how beautiful the princess was or what, you know. Yeah, steal a kiss, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I love what you said about how we seem to be gathering fragments of the divine goddess. That reminds me of the Egyptian myth of Osiris uh, or Isis gathering the pieces of Osiris that had been scattered. Um and when she does finally gather all the pieces of Osiris, the, the, including the, the reproductive part of Osiris, then the kingdom is restored, uh, fertility returns, um, the wasteland is, is no more. Um, what does gathering fragments mean for us right now as we're talking about the divine feminine? How do we do our part? Um, because this seems to be a really important key to what is coming, right? It, it, we're sensing that there's a lot of expansion in consciousness and the goddess and the divine feminine are in the conversation, finally, um, in a big way. Um, how do we do our part? How do we do our part if, if we're looking to help assist this movement in consciousness? Well, I think the, one of the first things is really reconnecting with nature because we've been taught by science, by materialist science, that we're separate from nature, that we're observers of nature. Yeah. Nobody has taught us about our relationship to nature and the fact that whatever happens to nature affects us. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing, is recovering our relationship with nature. That would be one thing of, of uh, gathering the fragments of the divine feminine or of the goddess, and, and it's really what I've been doing is piecing together this story, which has been so fragmented and so split up, as it were, that it's been very difficult to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. But I'm satisfied I have done it in that book, and also in a book called The Myth of the Goddess that I wrote with a friend of mine. We were gathering all these different stories of the divine feminine going back to um, 25,000 BCE, um, and bringing them together and showing the continuity of images all the way along, how certain images were connected with her. And um, one of them was her connection to nature, because she was nature. Absolutely, yeah. To those early people. And if you take a great statue like Artemis of Ephesus, which has many, many breasts, this is nature giving forth, as it were, from her bounty. This, so this is a, a, the grail again, if you like. Yep. So nature is, gives forth year after year, and we're just coming to spring now when the, the earth will return to life and, and put forth all the green and the plants and the crops and everything on which we depend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, even such things as the bees, we depend on the bees for, for life on the planet. So there are many, many pieces of this divine feminine. And I think that uh, taking care of plants, taking care of animals, taking care of children, taking care of um, the races that have been considered to be inferior. All this is part of re rescuing the divine feminine. Mm. It's restoring divinity really to ourselves and to all of us on the planet and to everything that, um, that we see and, and touch and, and eat and uh, love. 
all that is about uh, restoring the feminine because love, of course, love and compassion are the great qualities of the feminine and also justice. Yep. There's three things, compassion, wisdom, justice, and love. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the the Gnostics and, you know, when I was starting to study a little bit about what the Gnostics were about and discovered that they had a, you know, a central myth around the goddess and they really honored the feminine, the divine feminine. And, you know, there was, you know, as the church, as the, as the Roman church uh, and the Roman empire tried to wipe out, you know, the, the literally people, women, children, anybody connected to uh, Gnosis, as well as burn, you know, the Alexandria Library, burn all, you know, they tried to exterminate. They did, and, yeah. Yeah, they, and it's it's interesting to me to look and say, wow, here the flowering of the divine feminine is coming again. Like you can't, you can't exterminate the truth. You can't exterminate uh, divinity as hard as, as you may try. Um, it will keep reasserting itself we had one chance in the 12th century, and then unfortunately it faded in the Black Death of the 13th and also the persecutions. And then it started all the inquisitions, a dreadful period of Europe um, yep. that we went through. And now is our chance again. We've, it, it's come around again, and this time we've got to make it because we've got climate change yep. uh, coming at us, and we have to respond in a different way to anything we've done before. It's going to be difficult because the powers that be are so entrenched and so convinced that they must have the power that they want to have. It's really a, a, a battle between power or the will to power and compassion. Those are the two things that are facing each other. Compassion for the earth, compassion for everybody on it and all the life that's on it. And against this will to power that's got its grip on the neck of so many countries, the main countries like China, Russia, mm-hmm. America, and the yep. UK also. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got to, this is a hedge of thorns. We've got to think things through in a different way and understand that we've made huge mistakes in the past through mistaking the need for power with what we're supposed to be. Right, <laughs> you know, the right. way we we're supposed to live. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to ask you uh, about, you know, the serpent. I, I know this might seem like a change of direction, but I, over the years, like in Genesis, the serpent, obviously it's portrayed as a deceiver, right? And and in Abrahamic religion, the serpent um, still has this reputation. If you mention it to most Christians, Muslims, Jews about serpent, they, they would say, oh, it's this, you know, it's something to stay away from you. And But Gnostics and indigenous tribes um, would often re- uh, view the serpent as an ally to humanity. The serpent was the one that gave humanity secret instruction on our divinity and and the immortality of the soul, um, and also the serpent was associated with the feminine kundalini, which would rise in an adept to bring consciousness from earth up to the heavenly realms, or or a marriage again between soul and spirit, or between lunar and solar consciousness. And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were. You know, is the is the serpent the image of the serpent and all it comes with? Is it a deceiver? Is it is it an ally to humanity? Is it both, depending on your consciousness? No, I think that it's historically it was always a symbol of wisdom, divine wisdom. Do you remember the the um, cobra that sat on the 
brow of the Egyptian pharaohs? Yes. Yep. Well, that cobra was a symbol of the great goddess Isis. So, and that was wisdom and how to govern Egypt, so to speak, because the pharaoh had that on his forehead meant that he was um, infused with the with the power and the ability of the great mother to rule Egypt as she wanted it ruled, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, that's one aspect of the serpent, and then. It was always associated with the great goddess or the great mother because it was a symbol of her power to regenerate life. You know how the serpent sheds its skin yep. and it builds a new skin. So that always was a symbol of the goddess's power to regenerate life. And it was the most sacred symbol. And I remember something about Moses and the staff that turned into a serpent in the back of my mind. Yeah. Anyway, um, but... Unfortunately, in a dramatic reversal of the wisdom of the ancient goddess cultures, the serpent in the story of the fall of man in Genesis 2 and 3 was turned into the agent of bringing about the fall, tempting Eve to take that apple from the tree of knowledge. So then the serpent, um, God decreed that the serpent should be tread, trodden under Adam's foot, and it became a symbol of evil. But that was only to do with that myth at that time. Before that, it was always sacred in the most ancient cultures, always sacred in the indigenous cultures, and in Egypt particularly. And um, it was the most sacred symbol in Egypt that you could possibly have had, so to speak. So then we had the, this, uh, this upside-down process with the myth of the fall of man. Um, and it, can I go into a little bit in the detail there? Please do, Anne. Yes. What happened was in the year 621 BCE, there was a group of very powerful priests who wanted to take over the temple in Jerusalem, which they did. And once they'd got hold of it, they wanted to get rid of the goddess, the goddess Asherah, and leave the god Yahweh as the sole creator. They wanted to get rid of the goddess altogether and just have the god. Mm -hmm. So they took the statue of the goddess together with the great bronze serpent which stood in the, temp in the temple uh, precinct um, and threw it, out, threw it out, both of them. Goddess and serpent went together. And this new myth was created by them. This group of priests created the myth of the fall deliberately. And what they did, the goddess was formerly the tree of life which stood in the Garden of Eden. There was only one tree in the garden. And she was worshipped as divine wisdom and the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit as feminine came from. Yep. But what these priests did, they demoted her into the figure of Eve and gave her the title of mother of all living, which was the title of the goddess, who was the mother of all living. <laughs> you see what I mean? Absolutely. And then they blamed Eve for bringing sin, suffering, and death into the world. And so this myth is the origin of all the fear, hatred, and suspicion of women. And it's been a disastrous influence on Christian civilization and Christian behavior towards woman, and also towards the feminine aspect of man's nature, which is his capacity to feel his heart. That was demoted in relation to the mind, if you like. So we had all, after that, all the focus was on developing the mind. And the heart got neglected, and the heart is the seat of the soul. It's the connection to the soul. So the soul got thrown out together with the goddess, and um, now we're in the mess we're in, <laughs> very largely because of that myth.
So you had you had a small group of men in the priesthood who reimagined the Genesis and and the myths, the origin myths, and demoted the divine feminine, the cosmic feminine, the divine goddess, and basically um, reduced it down to Eve, who was deceived and <laughs> was responsible for. They created a whole story around it. Yeah. It's a good story. It's a good story, but they took it as divine revelation, the people who followed it, and Christians took it as divine revelation. It's the basis of the Christian myth, because because of that wretched myth, we needed a redeemer mm-hmm. to rescue us from the state of sin that we were supposed to be in. Right, right. Not, not a good story at all. Well, it's interesting uh, also with, with Christ, because um, Christos was, in the Gnostic myth, Christos was the redeemer of the divine feminine, the fallen goddess. From yeah, yeah, and so that there was a divine, a cosmic masculine uh, named Christos in that myth, who is Christ, and that there was a solar consciousness that was going to help uh, Sophia re- return to the Pleroma in the Gnostic realm. So there's always this dance and equal between the masculine and the feminine, but not when you read, uh, you know, the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's sorely out of balance. And you wonder, as you start to come across the uh, myths around the goddess, you wonder where is she in this story that they've made here? You know, it's, 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 oddly, it's oddly missing. She was dumped. <laughs> yeah, she was dumped. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think, is, is it important to restore... We just talked about the serpent. Does the serpent need to be restored to its place in our consciousness? Or is that was that a, a symbol from a different time that maybe isn't so relevant now? Or is that, is that something that got kicked to the side or turned upside down by the church that maybe needs to be uh, put back together? Well, I think with the serpent goes the whole wisdom of the animal world, which is mm. there which we don't appreciate or value, I don't think necessarily it needs to be restored as a symbol for our time because I don't think that people would understand it in that sense. Right. But the, For instance, the Peruvian uh, shamans, the anaconda is the greatest uh, animal there and is worshipped as such and is, is um, as it were, approached for wisdom of its teaching. So there you have something that survived in, in Peru and also in, in other um indigenous peoples that they would never ever put the serpent down the way it's been put down in the myth of the fall yeah yeah you know i i read in your book uh that you um you spent a considerable amount of time studying uh the kabbalah is that am i pronouncing that right kabbalah yeah you know I've seen it. Obviously, I'm a seeker, and I have got my nose in all sorts of esoteric uh, books. Uh, the Kabbalah, I've seen all over the place. It started to grab my attention because I'm like, "What is this? I can never, I can never interpret it." I've been through books of it, and I admire it as a work of art. It there's something about it that just makes sense. I can sense that it's been used by a lot of really powerful adepts and teachers, and it helps to as a map, um, but I've never really been able to understand or work with it. You know, I was hoping to ask you, how would you go about working with the Kabbalah? Um, Is it a map of how the divine, is it a map of the dimensions 
of the divine? What what is it exactly? Yes, it is. It's it's definitely a, a map of the dimensions. It's also a map of how creation came into being. Okay. From moving from one dimension into the other until we finally reach the material dimension. Okay. It's a very, very complex um, tradition. I personally think it's the lost tradition from that first temple before the priests threw out the Great Mother um, and the Holy Spirit because it comes in Kabbalah. We have a perfect union between the male and the female aspects of deity. It's the only tradition that carries that in the West. All the others have only the male monotheistic God in the patriarchal religions, but this tradition, this mystical tradition, which is actually called the voice of the dove, mm -hmm. somehow carries forward the older sacred marriage image from the older civilizations, from Egypt and, and from Sumeria. So how did it do this? And what happened to it after that temple uh, tradition fell? I think it went to Alexandria and took root there and then spread in different directions. But it is complicated, but it can be made more complicated by different teachers. Each person will have their own method of teaching. Yeah. I studied with somebody called Warren Kenton, who has just recently passed on. And he um, ex explained it to me, really. And I put it into my third chapter of my book. The basic teaching is that um, all of life is sacred because it's the manifestation of the deity. And uh, we have the deities, both male and female, and it's their union that brings the world into manifestation. So the union of the two aspects is essential for bringing this world into being. Mm. And um, what I particularly like about it is that they regarded this world as the garment of God. That's a lovely image, a garment of God. It is. And also that everything is holy because divinity is present within everything. And this is something we've totally lost. We do not consider that nature is divine or anything in nature is divine or that every blade of grass carries divinity within it or we ourselves carry divinity. So we've completely lost that teaching and Kabbalah has retained it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean, I, I, I keep approaching it. Maybe maybe I'll, I'll circle back around and look at it again. Um, is there, your teacher, did, did he write any books? Yes, he did not. His name was Warren Kenton. He wrote many books, very, very easy to understand. I would get his books because they really are very clear. Okay, that's that's great. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, the, the Gnostics have a word uh, uh, that they use called epinoia, which is a word uh, to express divine imagination. And in the Gnostic uh, thought, Epinoia was said to be the divine spark that came from the goddess. It was it was part of the goddess. Um, it was also could be thought of as spiritual knowing. And I I wanted to ask you what are some ways that people can cultivate epinoia or spiritual knowing in themselves? Well, it's really insight. Yeah, it's no it's gnosis in the form of insight, not knowledge, not the mm. kind of knowledge we learn at university or as scientists or whatever. But it, it's. It's visionary knowledge, really, and with that comes wisdom. But it, it comes through just studying the way you and I have been doing and gradually understanding things at a deeper level and discovering traditions which hold this knowledge. Because the, in Europe, it had to go underground in alchemy, for example, but alchemy contains all the spiritual knowledge that was once more widely spread in Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And the, the alchemists took Sophia again, just like the Gnostics, as their teacher. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think also I'd like I've written something here which I'd like to say really. Yeah. As part of the divinity we've been worshiping for thousands of years, we have the power to imagine and to create. But we can bring both good and evil into being. We have the power to use our divine imaginations to bring both wonderful and terrible things into the world. We can heal and transform as well as harm and destroy. Hmm. So we need insight. The development of insight comes through making conscious choices about the nature of what we're doing. Are we serving life with our divine imagination? Or are we destroying life with it? Are we serving the power principle that Jesus called Caesar? I'm thinking here of nuclear weapons and how their creation really pollutes the soul of their creators and our soul too for supporting them in our so-called defense system. So this would bring, if you begin to think of everything as sacred, um, then you realize that you can't wipe out two million people with a bomb without offending God's creation and God. So this is insight that comes with the realization that we have to behave in a different way. We have to do things differently. And I think this realization is beginning to dawn on people nowadays. And hopefully this will get us through into a new kind of civilization where we don't do the dreadful things that we've been doing in our current civilization. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. I, You know, we seem to be right now... Uh, we're seeing the crumbling of the old systems. Uh, it seems like everything is teetering. I, I don't know what the feeling is in the UK, but in the United States right now, there's a sense of uh, something is like things are not holding together. Like the monetary system, the government, the, like all the all the systems that we've built on and relied upon over the past, however you know many decades. Everything seems to be teetering right now, whether people admit it or not, you can sense it in the air. Um, and on one hand, you could say, hey, you know, this is the crumbling of the old patriarchy system, the old lower masculine uh, systems that are be- built on ego and conquest and power, denying the feminine, denying nature. So if these things are going to crumble to make room for the new consciousness, so be it. But Chaos still scares people. People, you could see people are maybe, you know, are we ready for this kind of monumental change? Um, You had a great passage from your book that I wanted to read uh, and then get your thoughts on it. So you said, quote, we are awakening to what I call the dream of the cosmos, the dream of an enlightened humanity engaging in a new role on this planet, a role that is in harmony with the evolutionary intention of the cosmos and is no longer driven by the quest for power conquest and control and appropriation of the earth's resources for the benefit of the few unquote this is beautifully said um what are your thoughts are we are we are we crossing the bridge um can we be optimistic right now because uh it seems like there's a new consciousness that is starting to come to the forefront how do we deal with the crumbling of the old systems even when those systems really didn't serve we the people i think that Um, what's happening now is a kind of birth. We're in the birthed canal and it's difficult and it's frightening and we don't know whether we're going to come through. So that's a a good sort of metaphor, I think, for what's happening. 
But it's very challenging for the whole of humanity because chaos is frightening, but there's going to be a great deal more chaos. And I want to want mention one book for your listeners at the end here, okay. which will explain what this chaos is likely to be over the next 50 years. But there's a huge opportunity at the same time as being in the chaos to break through to the understanding that we're part of nature and also part of the life of the cosmos, which is not dead, but is alive and intelligent and is the source of our own intelligence. And this demands a different relationship with both of them. So the old beliefs and the old habits, the scientific habits, which have regarded this dimension as the only reality and ourselves as the only living creatures in the universe, which is totally ludicrous, all this has to go and we have to create new understandings, new discoveries. And I think the great change demands that we understand that we're not separate and different, but we're part of one life and joined together at the base, as um, William James said, that we're islands on the surface yet connected in the deep, which is such a beautiful saying, I think. Absolutely. We're connected at the quantum level with each other. And so whatever race or color or creed that we identify with, we're all part of one life and we're all children of God. No one race or creed is supreme. We're all brothers and sisters of a divine mother and father. And we will all need to help each other to realize this because this is a tremendous change of understanding. And it will seem chaotic to the old order. But I think that we've been told to concentrate on bringing in the new and let the old worry about itself. You can't save the old. You can't help the old to disintegrate. Concentrate on creating the new, creating the new understanding and focus on that, and you'll find lots of people working with you, and um, really everybody will be helping each other and helping life to manifest this new kind of um, civilization that all of us are hoping for without these ghastly rivalries between nations and um, building up piles of money for some people. Eight people in the world own more than the total amount of money that the whole humanity owns, yeah. which is outrageous. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Anne. Are there any upcoming, you said there was a book you wanted to mention about chaos. And then I wanted to ask you if there was any upcoming uh, creative projects you want our listeners to know about, if there's any programs, talks, or you want to point them. We'll mention your your website uh, for sure and point them to that. But is there any other things that maybe you wanted the listeners to know about right now? No, no, I've just put a recent talk onto my web website and okay. also a recent uh, video webinar uh, so that both of them are there, plus all my playlists and everything. So I would invite them to go there. And the book that I mentioned is called Choosing Earth by Duane Elgin. Duane Elgin. Mm -hmm. Duane, D-U-A-N-E um, -E and Elgin, E-L-G-I-N. And he gives a sort of diagnosis of what's happening and a program of what is likely to happen over the next 50 years and what we have to work at if we are to build this new survival system really mm -hmm. as the old crumbles and as we create the new 
That's great. I'll go buy that book right now. <laughs> so I love your I love your website too. By the way, whoever did your website did a great job on it. It's it's really well laid out. Um, all your offerings in your writing are there. It's really accessible and really beautiful. So um, it was a woman who created it, a friend of mine. So yeah, really nice. Well, Anne, thanks so much for coming on Basecamp for Men. I feel like you and I could sit around a campfire and talk for hours. I would never get tired of hearing you talk and and sharing your wisdom and insight. And again, great job on your book, The Dream of the Cosmos. We'll be mentioning that. And thanks again for sharing your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been the greatest pleasure to talk to someone who really understands the book and understands me and my thinking. So that was lovely for me. And thank you very much indeed. It's wonderful. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Anne Baring as much as I did. I felt like I could talk to her all night and not run out of things to ask her. If you have not read the fairy tale, The Sleeping Beauty, or you have kids and you want to introduce them to a powerful tale of the lost feminine principle and the soul's journey, go pick up a copy. You can even get one at the library. Fairy tales carry an amazing transformative power in them. I was speaking with a friend just the other day, and I was saying that sometimes I think you could take out all the literature of the world and leave only the fairy tales, and the soul would still be able to figure out where it is and where it is going. Anne's book, The Dream of the Cosmos, is as good as everyone says it is. It's full of myth, magic, and the soul's journey and how we go about restoring the goddess and the feminine principle to its rightful place. To buy The Dream of the Cosmos or other books by Anne, go to Amazon. And to listen to Anne's excellent talks and find her video archive, go to www.annbearing.com. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Base Camp for Men.